All right. Um, hopefully you grabbed a packet on your way in tonight. And um, we're be, we have begun last week a study through basically a series that I'm calling Salvation Defined after we have looked at Church Defined uh, in the previous 12 weeks. We're going to take a, a moment to really just unpack what is the gospel? What, do we un- what is it? How do we understand it? What does it mean to actually be saved? And how is it that God actually saves us? And so we're going to take um, probably about 12 weeks, somewhere around there, to unpack all of these little um, bullet points, so to speak, of what it actually means to be saved and how we, we understand salvation. So last week we began uh, just by trying to wrap our minds around inherited guilt. What does it actually mean that we're guilty from birth? And what is it that makes us guilty? Why is it that we're guilty? Um, A lot of people kind of have the conception in their mind that what makes a person guilty is when they have the choice to do right or wrong and they choose wrong, and therefore God condemns them or has them held under condemnation because of the wrong choice that they made. And so when we say as a, as a church body or as Christians, we actually believe that you're condemned before you're ever born. That sometimes boggles the mind. How is it that we can be condemned before we're ever born? And so we start, started to unpack, let's first unpack what sin actually is, And what we said about that is sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God, either in act, in attitude, or in nature. And we spent a lot of time on that nature part, but and tonight we're going to spend a lot of time on the act and attitude part. But um, sin includes not only individual acts, such as stealing or lying or committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary to the ones God requires of. So as we start to unpack what the definition of sin really is, we can see that setting just inherited guilt aside from Adam's sin, the actual sins we commit are vast. Uh, When you consider that it's motivations of the heart, it's not just uh, killing somebody, thou shalt not murder, that's certainly a sin, but it's also are you angry with someone in your heart, sin. Right? So when we start to include all those kinds of things, attitudes, thoughts, things like that, now we realize just how deep the conviction really does go and how truly God does have us dead to rights. So our condemnation, we said, doesn't just merely come from those sins we commit day to day, but we're condemned because we're Adam's children. And, and what we said was Adam stands for us as a covenant head, meaning that what God saw fit to hold us responsible for what Adam did. And when you think about that, that's, that's one of those things that you, you kind of probably, maybe down deep somewhere, maybe in places you're not really willing to admit, that seems a little bit unfair. And that's our natural reaction is like, wait a second, but I wasn't there. I didn't do that. And the the problem is that what Adam did was stood in the place of us and God saw fit to punish all of humanity based on his actions. Now, proof that we're condemned because of what Adam did is that Adam was given the death penalty for his choice, wasn't he? Because he disobeyed the Lord, he was given the death penalty. How many people since Adam have suffered the death penalty? Everyone. Death is batting a thousand. All right? So, for all of us, we have suffered the penalty of Adam's sin. And so, Paul makes the argument in Romans, that is proof alone that before the law ever existed, before Moses was ever given the law, and before anyone was ever told, thou shalt not murder... People were still put to death. And that proves that it's not just a violation of the law for which you're, you're held responsible and you're put to death. It is because you're Adam's children. So as an explanation of that, Adam was created perfect. He was created innocent. 
What happened after he took from the tree, well, really took from his wife, and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What happened to him? Was he innocent anymore? Well, it's evident that he's not, because in the text it says he, they both realized they were naked. They were no longer in a state of innocence. How many people since Adam have been born in that same state of spoiled innocence? 100% of everybody. You don't have to teach your kids to steal. You don't have to teach them to cheat. You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach them to hit their sister in the face. They are born with that knowledge, and they will get there all on their own, like they were raised by wolves. Uh, I don't speak from experience or anything, you know, I'm just saying. Uh, so, everyone is held guilty as, res- as a response to our covenant head, Adam, who sinned in our place. And as a result, all of humanity goes along with him. We are all Adam's children. We are all spoiled by the same uh, spoiled innocence, I guess you would, you would call it. Um, and so we're all lumped into Adam. Now, throughout history, there have been several uh, doctrines that have popped up here or there that have sought to push back against that. One that is notable that we talked about is a, a, a doctrine that, that is condemned as heresy. It's called Pelagianism, and it uh, obje- objected, basically, to that doctrine of inherited guilt, of original sin, that, uh, hey, we're, we're not guilty in Adam. That would be unjust of God to hold mankind guilty for something someone else did. And what happens, though, is that denies the federal headship of Adam, but it also denies the headship of Christ, and that's the big problem. That is the reason why that is a heresy, is because it undermines what Christ does. What we're going to see, and I don't want to just, you know, spoiler alert here, okay, given the end of the movie, all right, but what we're going to see is that Adam was a covenant head, and there's one other person in history that functioned as a covenant head for all of humanity. And that God judged people based on what the covenant head did. And that covenant head is Christ. So just as Adam stood in the place of all humanity, so Jesus is going to stand in the place of humanity. And God is going to judge humanity based on what the covenant head Christ does. And we're going to get there as we go a little bit along the way. But tonight, what, we, what I really want to do is take that, the idea, the very idea of the inherited guilt, and then talk about what resulted from that. What is the result of us actually inheriting Adam's sin in his guilty state is that we continue to make sinful choices. So really what I want to do tonight is bury us really deep in sin, okay? Just bury us deep help display what the scriptures actually say of us. Because I'm going I'm to be really honest with you, the scriptures, if you take them at face value, as they paint what has happened to us, what is true of us now, post-fall, it's bleak. It does not give a rosy picture. You will not walk away, hopefully tonight, thinking, My children are innocent little babies. Nor will you think, hey, I'm pretty good, hopefully, after you read the vast amounts of Scripture that are helping us understand exactly what humanity is outside of Christ, just in in His natural state. What is the result from the fall? What has become true of us? I want you to just take notice... Pages 3 through 6 are just all Scripture. So it's going to be just a lot of Scripture that we go through. It's going to, a lot of times, be saying some of the same things, but it's designed to really help us grasp just how bleak the outlook really is for us. All right, before we get to the end. On the very back page, page 7, is a bibliography. It's just going to be a growing bibliography as I apply new resources to the material, so it's all resources that I've used, Um, so I would commend them to you to investigate, to read. Obviously, reading all of them is going to be quite an undertaking, but you get the idea. Um, This doesn't come from nowhere. Um, So let's let's begin. What what happens as a result? We've inherited guilt from Adam from the the moment the, the egg is fertilized. Guilty, right? As soon as that life begins, guilty. All right, from the get-go. Okay, but then what happens after that? 
What happens after we're born, after we begin living? There are actual sins that begin taking place. So in the sight of God, Adam's sin was the sin of all his de- descendants. So Paul tells us, in Adam all die. Because Adam sinned, all die. So that there, we are born sinners in a state of inherited guilt and inherited corruption. So every man is guilty in Adam and is consequently born with a depraved and corrupt nature. And this inner corruption is the source of all actual sins. So in other words, when we say the phrase, I sin because I'm a sinner, I'm not a sinner because I sin, I sin because I'm a sinner. It means that I was born a sinner. I was born with inherited guilt. And the reason that I commit sins is because my heart is wicked from the womb. Right? So, just to give an idea of what the result was of the fall, we get three chapters later in Genesis 6, and we see this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, in verse 5, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Okay, well then he destroyed everybody, right? And so then all that was left was the good people, Noah and a few others, and they walked off the ark. Until you get to chapter 8, a whole two chapters later in verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, as a sacrifice, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. From childhood, meaning from birth. The intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Look, this is the inevitable course of mankind. He says it's evil from his youth, from birth. How many people are on the earth at this point? Like eight. And they're people he selected to be on the ark. And they walk off the ark and they, they build a sacrifice, an altar to him. And he smells the pleasing aroma and he says, I'm never going to curse the earth like this again. In spite of the fact that man's wicked from, his, from birth. Um, or what about Psalm 51.5? This is David. After he's been confronted in his sin with Bathsheba from the prophet Nathan, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is not talking about his his mom having premarital sex or any of that kind of... That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is, I was a sinner from birth. I was wicked and corrupt from birth. Because how do we know that? Well, he goes on to confess his sin as a result of his wickedness. That's what he's doing. Or what about Jeremiah 17, 9? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or how about, well, that's all Old Testament, right? Well, then we get to the New Testament, and we get, we're going to read a lot of New Testament, but we're get, I'll just give you one. John 2, 23 to 25. This is John commenting on what Jesus thought. This is after he's turned the water to wine and said a couple things. 23, John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Corruption. All right. So, there's being born a sinner, and then there's that forms the, the kind of the heart, as it were, bends the heart, and that creates the actual sins that we then go off into. So the corruption, this next bullet point, the corruption inherited from Adam extends to every aspect of the sinner's nature. What, the, what I mean by that, every aspect, that means that no part of man, his intellect, his will, his affections, I mean, list whatever makes us up. There's no part of man. His mind is untouched by sin. There's no part of man that is untouched by sin. It, extend, it also extends to every man, excluding only Christ. Look at Mark 
to, to 23. And this is important because we're going to come back to this, this passage in a second. Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So, We'll talk about more of this in a second, but Jesus is building the, the case that your sin is actually a product of a, a twisted heart. It starts there before it ever gets... That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he spends so much time saying, you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder your brother. And that's true, but I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, because it's not just you taking a sword and running him through. It actually begins in here first with anger, with a, a thought. So, because this next bullet point, because of the inherited guilt and corruption that has resulted in every man, humanity is rendered incapable of manufacturing his own righteousness. So because of the state that we're in, we can't actually produce a right standing before God. That's impossible. No one can. So, just as an example of this, let's look at copious amounts of scripture. We won't read them all, but look at some of them. Job 14.4 Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Job, the next chapter, 15.14 What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Psalm 130 verse 3 If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The next one, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Who can say, I have made my heart pure, I am clean from sin? Um, let's look at John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Romans 3.10-12. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Well, that's pretty bleak. We'll come back to that passage in a little bit. Um, on and on it goes. Uh, Ephesians, look on the next page. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 2.3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's already building this really bleak picture of us, so, that, so much so that no one can surmount their own righteousness to overcome the wickedness both that we were born into and that we now choose on a regular basis. So in Mark, this next bullet point, in Mark 7, 21-23... Jesus uses this, so let me just read this, read it again real quick. It's on that first page there. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, and the whole, he goes on the whole list. All these evil things come from within. They come from the heart, in other words, and they defile a person. So in English, we use the word heart all the time, and, and what, what we mean when we say, bless your heart, or when we say, uh, you know, that's near and dear to my heart is my emotions, right? We kind of make that the center of the emotions. Um, but that's not necessarily the case um, in Hebrew and Greek and in centuries before. The heart was often in the, in the King James, you hear it, it's translated the bowels. Uh, it's the center of the movement of the person. It is the, the reason why they do anything. It is the, the central thinking organism. It is the, the thing that controls the intellectual processes, the spiritual processes, and it even includes the will. That blank is the will. It's, it's the inner being. Spiritual, intellectual processes, including the will. So, so what Jesus is saying is not only that sin has defiled man's innermost being, but also, in piling one evil characteristic on top of another, he's emphasizing just how bad men are corrupted deeply within. Every aspect of them is corrupted from top to bottom, from head to toe. 
And as a result, this is what they choose. Sin continually. And they cannot overcome that sin. There's, There's nothing. It's impossible. So at root of man's depravity is a rejection and hatred for Christ which reveals the central issue of man's corruption, namely a failure to give glory to God. It's first and foremost a rejection of the supremacy of God and His Lordship over our lives. So what's the result of being born in a state of inherited guilt is that we then are, we inherited a state of corruption. Because of that inherited guilt and inherited corruption, we begin to make essentially sinful choices. And the, the center of those sinful choices is actually a rejection of God Himself. A pushing back against His Lordship over our lives. So, so much so that we don't want to, under any circumstances, actually submit to His authority over us in our natural state. We have no desire to do that. Um, look at John 5, 42 to 44. Let me get there. It's on the second page, I think, uh, about midway down. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So his point is you reject me because you reject the glory of God entirely. You don't want God to rule over you and that is the reason why you reject. That is the the essential problem with the state of man as he's born. He rejects the authority of God entirely from top to bottom. And he has no capacity to overcome that in and of himself at all. Tracking with me so far? All right. It gets worse. (laughs) Romans 1, 21 to 32, you're probably pretty familiar with this. Paul begins going through a list of things Uh, basically the, the natural course of man. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men, the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, he, he's largely, in this first chapter of Romans, speaking uh, kind of to an audience sympathetic with Christianity, obviously, also probably has some background in Judaism, and he's sort of talking about uh, a, a broader world out there, that this is the natural state of man without God. But then he's going to go in the next chapter to go, but what about you Jews? You got the law. But do you tell people not to murder, and then do you murder? Do you tell people not to steal, and then do you steal? Well, then you're just as guilty as the ones that we're talking about here in Romans 1. 
So in many, case, in many re, uh, respects, Paul is describing all of humanity here that is in its natural course given to reject the glory of God altogether, although we have some knowledge that there is a God we should worship, that we reject all knowledge of God and all calls to obedience and all calls to repentance of sin, and instead, this is what happens as a result. So the sin goes from bad to worse, and it just becomes progressive. So this next bullet point, the rejection of God is not the default state of only a few, but Paul goes on to demonstrate that it's one universal. Everybody is uh, guilty of this. He's going to eventually track this all the way down to Romans 3.23. Many of you know this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that's his, his argument from the beginning of Romans is, okay, let's just track how far this law has really gotten us. Gentiles, guilty. Jews, guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What are you going to do now? Everybody's guilty. What are you going to do now? How could you possibly make yourself righteous if everyone's guilty by the only righteous standard we've ever been given. How are you going to make yourself righteous? So, it's universal. Everybody's in this situation. And two, it's pervasive. It's pervasive. So that everyone, he's going to go on to say, everyone's throats, tongues, and lips speak evil, their feet are swift to do evil, and their eyes lack any fear of God. So the corruption is total, it's universal, and it, it encompasses everything. So let's look at Romans chapter 3, 10 to 18. So he says this about what largely is the world without God, rejecting God, become foolish in their thinking. But here he gets to chapter 3 and he starts building the case, everybody, this is everybody. Look at what he says in verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace is not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, that sounds a lot like what he's just described everyone else as in Romans 1, doesn't it? Now he's building the case that it's everybody. It's not just the they out there. It's everybody. In total, universally, everyone is corrupt, which leads down to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He leaves no one out of fallenness or of the effects of the fall. Well, it gets worse. Um, because of our corruption, this next bullet point, because of our corruption, we're actually incapable of overcoming the flesh and pleasing God in any way, either by obeying His commands or responding positively to His, to his calling to submit to His Lordship. So that's what we have to do, right? We, that's, that's the goal. Submit to His Lordship. That's the exact thing that we're rejecting from birth. We don't want to do that. So he, he, the call is, you've got to submit to His Lordship. We don't want to do that. It turns out we're incapable of actually doing it, of overcoming the flesh to do that. Look at Romans 7, uh, uh, 7 18. Tell me I included it. It is... No. Did I? Five in the middle. Seven eighteen. got it, okay. All right. We're good, Okay. Um, Romans 7, 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Now, we, and we can talk about Romans 7 another time, but the point is that he's identifying that in my flesh I have not the ability to carry it out. Look at 8, 7 to 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not only that it does not, it cannot. It is incapable 
of submitting to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Um, so it's bad. Look at Galatians 4.3 In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Look at Colossians 2.13 And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Being dead in your trespasses. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's not a pretty picture. Universally, it's true, every single one of us is dead to rights, and we have no ability to overcome it. That's the bleak status of humanity prior to Christ, prior to salvation. It's, that's the situation. So we were, this next bullet point, we were by default born as unbelievers and as such dead. That's what he says in Ephesians 2, doesn't he? That's how he says it. He doesn't say you were drowning. He doesn't say you were flailing about in the ocean. He doesn't say you were in a pretty bad state. He says you were a carcass. A dead body. That is the state. There is nothing, I don't know if you know this, nothing that a dead body can do. I've been to a, a lot of funerals. So far, everyone that's dead just laid there. I look at them and I'm like, I, I, I thought I just saw them move. They didn't move. They all just stayed there in the casket. They're all dead. That is the picture of humanity. You're dead. Absolutely dead. He doesn't depict... Unbelievers as merely disinclined to the gospel. He says they have no capacity at all to respond to the gospel. They're engulfed in trespasses and sins and find their delight in the realm of sin and death rather than doing the will of God. That is our nature. So then, since he is dead, this next bullet point, the sinner can in no way do anything that meets the perfect demands of the holy law of God. Further, the sinner is unable to change his preferences or his desires for sin so that he may turn to love God instead. If it were possible for you to turn, to do it, who would want to die? Here's the casket. Who would want to do that? It isn't possible for you to do it. You cannot change your desires. Now, you can do a lot of things. You can mimic things. You can walk down front. You can pray a prayer. You can do a lot of things that people tell you to do to make it appear as though you have it all together. And you can think, I have put salvation together. I have connected the dots. And I'm doing what everyone is telling me to do. I'm singing the songs, I'm praying the prayers, I'm walking through all of the steps that everybody is telling me to walk through. But you know what you can't change? Your affections. You can't change your loves. I'm convinced that my son will never eat real food. I'm convinced he will never do it. You can't make him. I remember him being, I mean, tiny. The earliest I can possibly remember him being and eating solid food. And he was as picky then as he is now. And was stubborn as the day is long. I will not eat it. He hates it. I will not eat it. You try to put it in his mouth and... Just... Throws a conniption and gags and all kinds of other things. 
Because you cannot change your loves. It's impossible. So it's a problem. Because the, what, what's painted for us in Scripture is that our desires are towards evil and we cannot overcome those. Um, listen, look at what Jesus says in John 8, 34. Truly, truly, I say to you, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He's, he doesn't just do it. He actually is a slave to it. Slavish obedience. How about uh, Romans uh, 6, 6? Uh, we know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the way the New Testament depicts it. It's not that you just choose it because it seemed to be the better option at the time. But you were enslaved to it. You were chained to it. You actually loved it. We wanted it. In other words, yes, last week I, I kind of depicted our enslavement to sin as our, our, our freedom of the will or whatever it is to be bound inside of a prison, right? Where a prisoner might say to other prisoners, oh, I, was, I was free today. I got to go play basketball on the prison yard. To the outsider, you look at that and go, well, well let's just not be careless with our terms. That's not freedom. Like, you weren't free. You were still watching over your back to make sure you weren't shanked, right? You're still in prison. You're bound inside prison. That is the picture. The difference is the prison of sin has no walls around it. All the people that are in prison, enslaved to sin, want to be there. It's the desire of the heart to be there by nature both inherited from Adam and as a result of Adam's transgression. So, um, so then what we, what, how we understand that is this next bullet point here at the end. Man is not forced or constrained against his will to commit sin, but he loves sin willfully and perpetually choosing to make sin his master. So sin coincides with man's strongest desires. So we get this in the Old Testament where there's constantly this appeal from God and the prophets to the people to say, you know, here's the law, repent. In fact, the whole Old Testament is God putting the law before humanity and saying, come to it. Just do it. Just obey the law. And time and again, they, they demonstrate that they can't. Every time they get close, they turn away. They don't really want it. And so it leads Jeremiah in 13, 22 to 23. Let me, um, yeah, on the back, last page. They're being judged, obviously, for their disobedience. And verse 22, he says, And if you say in your heart, Why have these things come upon me? It's for the greatness of your iniquity that your skirts are lifted and you suffer violence. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, you can do good in the same way that the Ethiopian can change his skin or the leopard can change his spots. In other words, you, you can't. The law has been put before humanity for thousands of years and no one's been able to do it. So it's evidence that we're corrupt. This is what I was saying last week is if that wasn't the case, if we weren't corrupt from Adam, and we, then surely one of us would have gotten it right. right. Some of you may think it was you, but it's not. None of us have gotten it right. We're all corrupt from the womb. So our, what that means then is, and, and echoing Jesus when he says, you, everything comes, it comes from your heart. Your heart is broken. The desires of your heart, your will, your intellect, your reasoning, everything is broken. And as a result, come all of these passions and desires that are bent towards evil. Our strongest desires, this next bullet point, our strongest desires are after the fall, are towards sin and our wills necessarily follow our strongest desires. 
They necessarily follow our strongest desires. So what that means is you and I are not forced or coerced to sin, but sin willingly because his will finds its strongest desire not in God, but in sinful pleasures. This is the point that James makes in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 15. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. By the devil? No. By his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, needless to say, the picture of humanity post-fall is really, really, really bleak. The Bible, in describing man's nature, leaves absolutely no hope. So what has to happen? How can that be overcome? Well, we've already said it's not by some choice you're going to make. It's not by some change you're going to do. It's not by some three-step program you're going to follow. Left to himself, man is not and morally cannot choose God until his inclinations, that is, his preferences, his desires, are changed by a sovereign act of grace. By a sovereign act of grace. It's in the sovereign work of regeneration that man's disposition is changed and his inclinations reoriented. And God alone can liberate man from his willful bondage to sin. So the state that the Bible leaves us in, in our natural state, is we're dead. The only thing that can happen is God has to come into the person and change their inclinations, change their desires, change their heart. That is it. Outside that happening, they'll never do it. They'll walk down the aisle all day long. They'll pray the prayers all day long. May even get in the waters of baptism all day long. They'll fake it, maybe even to death all day long. But their inclinations, their desires, their preferences, their loves will never change at all unless the Lord does it. And that is salvation. Now listen. So if that's the state of man, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1-10. And I'm hoping that maybe... Some of you will see this differently than you have before. Having understood what humanity is, now listen to the way Paul describes what happened in salvation. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. It's the only way we can become alive. Someone has to come from the outside into us and make us alive. And that's what Paul is saying. That is salvation. That's salvation. When God invades the soul of a dead human and makes them alive again, Jesus is going to describe this very act as 
new birth or being born again? Question. James. Palpitation. Yeah, um, so I would say the way that he defines the, de the debasedness of the mind is to be filled with ma all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, maliceness, ma malice, um, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Um, and I would say let's define those the way Jesus would define those. So let's define a murderer as someone who is angry. Let's define an adulterer or fornicator or someone who is lustful the way Jesus would define someone who is a fornicator as someone who lusts after someone in their heart. Let's define a liar as not someone who, a politician, let's define it as someone who down to even the widest of lies. Um, if we define it narrowly, and then let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount, and let's let Jesus define sin for us, and define righteousness for us, and when he does so in 548, where he says, you must therefore be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect, let's let debasedness be defined as anything short of that, and let's follow Paul where he goes, which the end of what he goes to is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If what he meant to depict here was simply a person, Hitler, right? He's always my example, because I think everybody agrees how evil he was. But if that was what he meant to depict, then he wouldn't be bringing that down to the close of his argument, or the transition to his next argument in 323, where he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's meaning to do here is to say there, there are certainly degrees, but it begins with acknowledging God and giving Him thanks. Lead, refusal to do that leads to turning over of the mind. So the point to Asan or to any unbeliever is are you currently submitting to the Lordship of Christ and trusting that by grace, through faith in Him, you are saved? Are you currently submitting to his rule and reign over your life? If you're not, then you're in some state of this progression. Or you might call it regression. Um, to where you're going, you're, you're worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so whether you're all the way where you're filled with all these things and, and you're as bad as you possibly could be, which is what Paul is kind of tracking, tracking down, whether you're there or whether you're just simply not submitting to his lordship, what does it matter? You know, repent now, right? That's the call, anyway.
Go ahead. Um, so, yes, but l- let's back up. I wouldn't say he makes sinners. He, we are sinners as a result of Adam's transgression, period. So th- the point that I'm making is that we are all dead. We're all dead. So th- the state we are all in as a result of disobedience, Adam's disobedience, now also we're complicit in that, right? Uh, and our sin is a, is a proof that we're complicit in his disobedience. As a result of that, we are all dead. The miracle is that he saves any of us. That is the grace and the mercy. He certainly doesn't have to. He, he has every right to just say, you're gone. He doesn't. In fact, it helps us to understand what Paul means when he says, by grace you have been saved. It's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. That is about anything. It is a gift of God. So it does the Christian a lot of good, trust me, to start thinking a lot about the question, why did he save me? It's a question you won't get the answer to, by the way. The answer really is because it brings him glory. That's the answer. It's an answer that sometimes is unsatisfactory. I want a little more. Give me a little more. But I'm sorry, that's behind the veil. Those are questions you don't get the answer to other than because I chose to. Because it is for my glory. That's it. I want more. Too bad. It's behind the veil. No one can know the mind of God. So it does the Christian a lot of good to say, we're all condemned. All of us. And, and by the way, it coincides with what we desire. Has there ever been... I mean, James takes the rug out from under you. You can't say, the devil made me do it. God made me do it. You can't say that, oh, well, I, I didn't want to sin, but well, there I was. That argument is ruled null and void. You can't do it. It, I I wanted to do it. I chose to sin because I wanted to. So we're all complicit in that. There's no one that can stand there and say they didn't want to do those things. So we're all condemned. That's what I'm saying. From birth, we're all condemned. And the miracle is that he saves any of us. The grace and the mercy is that he saves any of us when he didn't have to. I hope that answers your question. But there, there was only that one part that you said that I was like, that's not quite how I would phrase it, that God makes us dead. Uh, we pray for you that you make a wise decision and who you invest your time and resources and energy into. And um, May we all have that problem. Uh, you know, um, you, no, it's actually precisely the opposite. It is, it is a, um, so we're, we'll get into this. There's, there's an argument being built here, hopefully, but um, how does that happen? We see, we see God made us alive together with Christ. Uh, he seated us. It is by grace you've been saved, not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. How does that gift come to us? How does that, how, how do we receive that, that kind of new life, that, that being born again? How do we receive that infusion of the Spirit? 
And Paul is going to tell us the preaching of the gospel. It's the only way it happens. That is the conduit through which the Spirit invades a dead body and brings it to life. And it, it troubles people. I think, James, to answer your question, the reason that people don't talk about being born again a lot is because, to be honest with you, as Americans, we love to think we're the captains of our own destiny. And we love to sit there and think that, look, no one makes me do anything. I do what I want to do because I'm an American, and I choose what I want to choose, and I am free, I have freedom, and this is what I want to do, and I either choose Christ or I reject Him, but it's my choice. And when you teach this, and you say, but you're dead, and all of those things that you're saying, that you have the right, and you're you choose and da 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 have no scripture to support you. And every scripture testifies you are dead. And unless the Spirit of God actually makes you alive, you're going to be dead. That makes us uncomfortable. Let's just be honest. That makes us a little squeamish. Because now my salvation isn't up to me ultimately. It is up to God, who does or does not do, I don't like that. I don't like my salvation being left in somebody else's hand. Sorry, God is the only one that saves. You can't save yourself. So the point is, if you hear the gospel, that you must be born again, repent. And if you say, yeah, I just don't want to repent. kind of backs up the argument, right? The prison has no walls. Yes. Because you go, that's a miracle. Ezekiel preaching to dry bones. All of a sudden they got up. What? How does that happen? How does that work? Grace and mercy of God. That's it. And all of a sudden, you see this radical change in somebody's life. Does that come from a dead corpse? How does that work? Only God's movement. It makes us uncomfortable. But, get over it. That's what Scripture says. You know, and, and contrary to popular belief, my job and my goal in this whole study, not to make you a Calvinist, I didn't start off being Reformed or a Calvinist and then start studying the Scriptures to prove it. I read this and was like, well then, what do we do? What do I make of that? And that's what I ultimately had to conclude. Is that God chose to save. So then, you start wrestling with the question, why did he choose me? What does that create? It creates a church of people who worship the risen Christ because for whatever reason, he saved me. And we'll spend the rest of our lives trying to figure out why. I don't know, but he did. Praise God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for a time to just study your word and to teach it and to think through it and study the implications of it. Pray that, honestly, at the end of the day, we really just let your word be our guide. That we let it shape who we are and how we are and what we do, what we think. We not be trapped by philosophies and even theologies and things like that, but that we really be guided first and foremost by your word and that we submit to it and trust it. And we don't have all the answers, we know. And we know we never will this side of glory, but we pray that you give us just enough, encourage us, push us to worship Make our worship true and genuine. 
all of us, myself included. Make it genuine. That what we demonstrate both to each other and to the world are people that are saved by your grace and your mercy alone. Testify to everyone around us what you've done. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.